You're listening to a podcast from Hicksville Cornerstone Church. For more information about the church, visit us at hickscc.org. That's H-I-X-C-C.org. Thanks for listening. Turn with me to the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 5. Today's focus was going to be on the first and second Beatitude. What is that? 25 minutes into my sermon, though, I'd only gotten through one, um, and I had to trim it. Uh, So we're going through one. So at this point, we should be done with Matthew sometime in the middle of 2027. So I apologize for that. It's amazing, though. You know, it's... Bear with me. I, I, I was reminded again today, AJ, you are a young preacher. This is... This is not even, you're not even a full year into doing uh, preaching ministry from the pulpit for a full year, full time. Um, So it's okay, AJ, if if the Lord hits you and and is continuing to build um, how you are as a preacher. Um, It's comforting to me, right? I go back and I listen to many of these and I'm like, man, I'm sure in five years I'm going to look back and be like, they actually paid me for this? Uh But uh, I appreciate your, uh, you're willing to... uh, Walking with me through this, I'm grateful to you all. Uh, Please stand as we read together Matthew 5, 3. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Bow your heads with me as we go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, Today we speak again of blessing, and I cannot think of greater blessings than the Word of God and the Word made flesh. And so we thank you that you give us this text that speaks so deeply to who we are and where we are at as creatures, as imago dei, as people who bear your image. And so, Lord, use this text today to pierce our hearts And make us awe and wonder at our good Savior. In your son's name I pray. Amen. Let's begin with a riddle. I actually want one of you to to yell it out. Okay? If you know the answer. Okay? What can be swallowed but can also swallow you? What can be... Oh, good. Oh, okay. We're done. Thank you. Great sermon. Excellent. Pride. Pride. It's a sin that affects all mankind. I've both read the statistics, and I've lived life, and I've seen it. Okay? If you're in here with me, and you're human, you probably struggle with this on some... Let me rephrase that. You struggle with this on some level. We are all prideful people. It's, it's part of being human. I would say it's almost a, a default part of our nature in the, in the midst of the fall. Not only that, we live in a culture in America. I love America. Please don't hear me bashing America. But it's sold to us as a good to be proud. But you see, even though it's sold to us like medicine, at the end of the day, it functions much more like arsenic than it does Advil. Webster's Dictionary defines it as this, 
One, a feeling that you respect yourself and deserve to be respected by other people. Self-respect. So it equates pride with self-respect. Two, a feeling that you are more important or better than other people. And three, a feeling of happiness that you get when you or someone you know does something good, difficult, etc. Think about it. To be proud of yourself is to respect yourself. That's how we equate it in our culture. And by golly, you deserve it from others, don't you? But it slowly can move into suddenly seeing yourself better than others. It's even marketed not as a vice, but a virtue. And at the end of the day, we have this assumption, especially as we compare ourselves to others, that maybe we are indeed better than others. Here's what the Atlas Society goes so far to say as it lists the virtue of pride. Listen how they describe the virtue of pride. The virtue of pride is a commitment to achieve self-esteem by taking credit and responsibility for acting on one's judgment in accordance with principles. It goes farther. Pride seeks to esteem of oneself as the author of those actions, that is, esteem of one's worthiness. Pride results in being able to look at one's accomplishments and say both, I did it and it is good. I couldn't help but thinking about that scene in that movie Castaway, right? He builds the fire, Tom Hanks. I, I, I have created fire. It is good. He's proud of himself in that moment, alone on a beach, castaway on an island. We crave this. You see, we have a culture that's obsessed with it, and it begins to define how we view ourselves. Pride shapes our identity. Men. Men. You and I crave this. We want to be proud of our work, proud of our children, proud of our wives, proud of our sports teams proud of our toys. We carry much pride when it comes to these things, right? If we have them, we parade them around, right? We we are keen to make others aware of our victories or our accomplishments. We can't get enough good jobs or pats on the back, right? And this is why we have linked our accomplishments to our identity. It has moved from something we have done to suddenly what we have done becomes who we are. It begins to define us at our core. Here's the terrifying part. There will come a day where the accolades stop coming. When the pats on the back feel much more like slaps in the face. And when we can't tangibly point to something recent that we would call a victory. And when our pride takes a hit, our self-esteem shatters. And in that moment, our heart goes to despair. Self-esteem and pride are set up like an idol to men, like an idol to men. 
And it's destroying us. It's destroying our families. And as someone who was in a youth ministry for 17 years, it destroys our children. We have a young male suicide epidemic in this country that's vastly underreported and not talked about. And I'm convinced from the data that one of the main drivers of this is that we have linked our personal value with our personal victories. And so when one no longer exists, our value no longer exists either. Instead of linking our personal value to the victory of Christ. Only one can function as the cornerstone of our lives. The other one is like a mud wall that is trying to hold itself up against the storms that come. And when we tell men that the world revolves around them and then they fail, pride leads them to despair. Proverbs uh, 29, 23 says this, one's pride will bring him low and he who is lowly in spirit will obtain, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. You see, pride is the anchor that limits how far we could sail with our God. Pride is the anchor that limits how far we could sail with our God. Men, hear me, pull up that anchor. If we begin, think of it, if we begin to lead with humility in our families, in our workplaces, with our children, it will be so countercultural because the culture sells you pride as a virtue that it can't help but be noticed by those around us. It challenges the motivations, right, that we set for our goals. Is our goal in life, our achievements, do we want it to say, look at me? Or do we want our achievements to say, look at him? Ladies, y'all thought you were getting out of this, didn't you? You're like, I love it when he talks to the guys. It's something to remind my husband about at lunchtime later today. Remember when he spoke directly to you? Ladies, I have seen much of what I just said about men, yes, still applies to you. And what I'm about to say to you many times does apply to the men too. So it's not like a Venn diagram of complete opposites, okay? But I've seen two areas that I want to address this morning. Um, one uh, is seeing pride as it relates to your children. And the other one being social media, okay? Now hear me, moms are awesome. Okay, I have an awesome mom. Moms are cool. But mothers can have a tendency to evaluate how good of a mother they are based on the accomplishments of their children. Dads do this too, right? I mean, we live our lives vicariously through how our sons are doing in sports. We've all seen that, Dad. But they don't come for me to me for counsel when the kids have left home. I have seen this way too many times. Kids grow up, they leave home, they distance themselves from their parents. It's not necessarily a bad thing. They're trying to grow up. And then the mom is suddenly in my office and she doesn't know what to do because she's an empty nester because so far in life she has linked her identity 
to her value as a mother instead her instead of her value as a Christian. So she looks at me in our in my office, going, "I don't know what to do," and even worse, this one terrifies me, and I don't know how to feel. And instead of trying to find their comfort and satisfaction in the Lord, I've had, I've had ladies say this to me. They just start praying for grandbabies. <laughs> because they want their pride, their identity to be found in now the accomplishments of them. Second thing, this strongly affects the younger generation, and that's social media. Um, Social media, so you know this, is made to make it look like we have it all together, right? That's how the vast majority of people use it, right? No one posts their before coffee pictures, right? This is me just waking up. I hate you all. No one posts their pictures of the children, you know, half of them naked, right? Running around the house trying to get their clothes on in the morning. We make sure they're well posed. No one posts pictures, right, of us sobbing in the car. No one posts pictures of, I just failed my English exam, now I can't go to college. We don't post that one. When we do post... Now, and this is a whole other conversation, sometimes very edited pictures. The majority of social media influencers on Instagram and Twitter do not post natural pictures of themselves. They reshape themselves and they change coloring. That's just a fact. Okay, and then we got to live up to that. Sorry, off that soapbox, okay? But when we post sometimes edited pictures of ourselves, it's showing our favorite drink, right? Pumpkin spice latte. Best life now. It's in our cutest outfits with our cutest poses. Right? I can't do it. I tried. Okay? That was my best. That was my best one. That's why I don't post a lot on social media, right? It's always after great life experiences, and it's always after deleting the 11 other pictures we took of ourselves that we didn't like. I think the average among teenage girls is eight. They'll delete eight pictures for choosing the one that they post. Somewhere between eight and 11, I forgot. I couldn't, I couldn't find that statistic again, okay? But what do we want to do when we do that, right? We want to communicate, I've got my life together. I've got my life together. That screams pride, right? I'm fine. I'm happy, right? It's what the Atlas Society definition is. Look at me. I'm good. I'm happy. Social media has drastically impacted, impacted the uh, mental health of teenagers over the past 10 years. The statistics are very clear on this. Um, bullying is up. Suicide is up. Self-harm is up. And the comparison game is through the roof because we try to paint our best lives now. And we base our identity and pride based on how many likes or hearts a specific post got. Teenagers and parents, Okay. I say this especially when I talk about developing a a correct theology of technology. If you do not have a seatbelt, I call it a seatbelt, some sort of app on your phone that is at least diagnosing or making you aware of how much time you spend on it, do that this afternoon, right? Just so you know, 
Okay? We know from the data that if you spend more than two hours a day using social media apps, it drastically begins to affect your mental health and depression. We know that for a fact. The average for a teenager is somewhere between four and six. At least make yourself aware, okay? It's harming brain development and mental health. And again, there's tons of signs to back this up. Now, one question comes up when I always talk about pride, right? And it comes up, well, where does your pride shine is typically how I respond. But here's the question. Pastor AJ, are you saying we can't be proud of anything? I just got an A on my test this week. I studied real hard for it. Pastor AJ, I just got a brand new job. Can I be proud of it? Pastor AJ just had another grandkid. Can I be proud of that? Here's the question you should ask. Does your pride lead you to pat your own back or to give thanks to God for giving you the ability to achieve the goals set before you? Where does your pride shine? Does it pride shine down on, look at me? Or does it shine up and say, look what the Lord has done? Is there thanksgiving that responds or is it, I deserve this? And I'm going to capture it on Instagram, right? And this is, brings me to the idea of self-worship. There was an article this week from the Gospel Coalition author Thaddeus Williams. Side note, I love the name Thaddeus. Awesome name. Awesome name. Corey didn't, hence why we have a Robert, okay? <laughs> Rad Thad, right? I mean, that's not you. Okay. Um, and the title of the, author, uh, the article was Self-Worship is the Fastest-Growing Religion in the World. What do I mean by that? I'm going to quote from it extensively because it helps put today's problem into focus as we begin to address it with the solution found in Scripture. Listen to the statistics on self-worship. Listen to it. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. More than four out of five people enjoying yourself is the highest goal in life. Further, 86% believe that to enjoy yourself, you must pursue the things you most desire. You must pursue the things you most desire. 86% of Americans. A whopping 91%. 91 is an A, I hear, at uh, Hicksville High School. Okay? 91% affirm the statement, to find yourself, look within yourself. And we wonder why we got issues in our country. In, in our day, the Westminster Catechism answer has been reverted. If you've ever used the Westminster Catechism, the first question is, what is the chief end of man? And the answer to that is, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But we've made it, the chief end of man is to glorify and enjoy himself forever. That's what our culture teaches us. That's what people believe. One could even make the case that self-worship is the world's fastest growing religion. It certainly is the oldest. See Genesis 3. 
Listen to the six commandments of self-worship. This is what our culture sells us. One, your mind is the source and standard of truth. So no matter what, trust yourself. Hashtag, the answer lies within. Your emotions are authoritative. So never question or let anyone else question your feelings. Hashtag, follow your heart. Thank you, Disney, for that one. You are sovereign. So flex your omnipotence and bend the universe around your dreams and desires. Hashtag, live your truth. We see that in churches when we say things like, speak things into existence. You are supreme. So always act according to your chief end. To glorify and enjoy yourself forever. Hashtag YOLO. I went through that phase in youth ministry. That was a rough two and a half years. Uh, What's YOLO? Uh, You only live once. Which is different from YODO. You only die once. You are sumum bonum. I know that's Latin. You're like, AJ, don't do that to me. You are the standard of goodness. So don't let anyone oppress you with the antiquated notion of being a sinner who needs grace. Hashtag never change. (laughs) I thank God he's changed me, right? Lastly, you are creator. So use that limitless creative power to craft your identity and purpose. Hashtag authenticity. This is, this is the American God. This is the American God, which is a far cry, right? From blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's a far cry. Well, what are the poor in spirit, AJ? What are the poor in spirit? There's a lot I don't have time to get into detail with here. But Jesus is not talking about a lack of earthly riches here, right? The poverty that is in place here is the title of your sermon. And that is a poverty of arrogance. A poverty of arrogance. It's a lack of pride. What is it really saying? Blessed are the humble, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the humble. But this isn't us. Newsflash. We are not humble. We are some of the most proud people that ever lived. I'm proud to be an American, where at least I know I'm free. It's my best country accent ever, okay? But we're so proud. You just heard the statistics. 84% of Americans believe that enjoying yourself is the highest goal. 86, pursue the things that you desire the most. 91%, to find yourself, look within yourself. We think that the source of being happy is in here, following your heart. Like all the Disney movies say. The Bible makes it clear the heart is deceitful. Jeremiah 17, 9. If I did all the things my heart desired me to do as a teenager, I would be in prison. Again, right? Like, it's not good. What should a Christian be? The enjoyment of God is the highest goal in life. It's countercultural. The Bible says, die to self. 
Hear the warning in 2 Timothy 3.2. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. He just described where I live. Further, the Bible says to put on a new self. For the old self and his practices actually destroy us. Last, the culture says to find yourself, look within. No, look to your creator who has called you beyond yourself. When we pit the worship of self against up the worship of God, we find one completely lacking, which is setting us up, which exposes one obvious problem, which is we've set up an opposing kingdom to the kingdom of God, right? In our rebellion of him. Thaddeus Williams says this, when we try to be our own source of truth, we slowly drive ourselves crazy. We slowly drive ourselves crazy. When we try to be our own source of satisfaction, we become miserable wrecks. When we become our own standard of goodness and justice, we become obnoxiously self-righteous. Go on Twitter for like two minutes. When we seek self-glorification, we become more inglorious. Why? It's simple. I'm going to give you the focus of today's sermon. I'm sure it's going to be, um, you never heard it before, right? That's something I need to be reminded of. We are not God. We're not. And when we set ourselves up, we're thinking, this will solve it. I'll just play God. And all it does is lead us to misery. You were never meant to carry the burden of trying to define your own identity. You were never meant to carry that burden. You were never meant to carry the burden of satisfying yourself. We as image bearers are made to revere something infinitely more interesting and awesome than ourselves. We become most truly and freely ourselves in a state of self-forgetful reverence. We become most truly and freely ourselves in a safe of state of self-forgetful reverence. The more self-absorbed we are, the less awe of life we experience. The less awe we experience, the less fully and freely we become ourselves. Think about this. 35,000 people every year make the very dangerous and sometimes deadly trek to see Mount Everest. Why? 4.5 million, the Grand Canyon. Why? 3.5 million, Yosemite. Why? 30 million, Niagara Falls. Why? Deep down, we crave awe. Why? We were made for it. We were made for awe. And this is where both social science and material science are starting to catch up with the Bible. Scientist Paul Piff of the University of California, Irving, coined the term small self to describe this phenomenon. After exposing his subjects to several elicitors of awe, Piff reported, we found the same sorts of effects. People felt smaller, less self-important, and behaved in more pro-social fashion. Awestruck people statistically are more generous, 
more dialed into the needs of others, and more caring towards our natural world. Arizona State behavioral scientist Michelle Lanny Shiota has found that awe not only increases generous decision-making, it also drastically improves cognition. Awe makes us less susceptible to bad arguments and more responsive to good ones. There's a mountain of research from psychologists connecting experiences of awesomeness with substantial decline in depression. Substantial. Do you, want to be ha- do you want to live happier and fuller lives? I think all of us would go, yes. The science is clear. Let's be awestruck by something, or namely, someone infinitely bigger than ourselves. If we're going to have lasting countercultural effect on society that has fallen for the cult of self-worship, then let's recenter our lives on the God of Psalm 98.7. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. Do you feel that pull to something greater than yourself? Something lasting, a journey fitting, a novel, a role that will last long past you take your last breath? This is what you're called to as you submit and humble yourself before an awesome God. But if you're like me, I don't want to do that most of the time. Because, see, there's a link between pride and repentance. Pride is hard to let go of, especially when dealing with sin. We don't like to admit our faults. Further, we live in a culture that says to, um, to not show your weaknesses, right? Men have all been told that at some level. Don't show your weaknesses. And certainly not admit them. But what does Jesus do with his first sermon? Remember from a couple weeks ago? Same sermon as John the Baptist. Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Yet we're so proud that with Jesus' first word, we even minimize what repentance is, right? We play God. We worship self. And when we realize that we're sitting on God's throne, I'm sure maybe this is how the conversation goes in my heart, right? Sorry, God. Didn't realize what I was doing there. No big deal, right? I mean, you're a God who forgives. I I hear you like forgiving. So here's another opportunity. And it was a very small indiscretion as I sat on your throne. Glad I could give you another opportunity to forgive. I know you like that. You're welcome. And then we minimize sin by laughing at it, by saying, well, well, everyone else does it, but not trying to treat it for what it is. That is not repentance. Minimizing our sin and faults is not repentance. Repentance sees sin for what it actually is and sees God for who he actually is and mourns that sin. Again, hear that. Repentance is seeing our sin for what it actually is and seeing God for what he actually is and mourns that sin. There is a guilt that rises within us when we understand the disgusting acts, the lifestyle choices we've made, and the evil that's been committed. And there is always in repentance a what-have-I-done moment. 
But God doesn't leave us there. In repentance, we turn from sin to God. And we see a Savior who stands there with open arms ready to embrace us. And when he does embrace us, what does he do? He calls us his child. He adopts us as his own. And we are left in awe of a Savior. That's why I love the story of the prodigal son. Prodigal son knows he sinned. He goes back to his father. I'll just work it off. And his dad is making a fool of himself, running down the road to hug his son and clothe him. That's how your God sees you when you repent of your sin. He comes to you. He clothes you. He cares for you. He doesn't call you just someone to work for him. He calls you his actual child. That's your God. And it should leave us in awe. Too many people would call themselves Christians who have never once truly repented of their sin. Not one time. They've just minimized it. They don't have saving faith because they don't have any repentance. It doesn't say just believe the gospel. It says repent and believe the gospel. They've never truly humbled themselves before the Lord. They might have offhandedly said, sorry, God. Right? I did that when I was a pagan too. I didn't even believe in Jesus. But there has been no confession on any particular sins. And the false Christian rarely humbles himself before the Lord and asks for forgiveness. Christians, when was the last time you did the serious work of asking God for forgiveness? When was it? Can you even remember? Church, we got some work to do. We cannot expect revival in our community. We cannot expect the spheres of influence that we have to change if repentance is not present, if humbling ourselves before the Lord is not present. And every revival that has ever been written about since the start of the church, two things are present, okay? Two things. One, prayer. And prayer is a posture of submission. It's saying, I need the Lord for work and life to be brought to my world. And the second one is repentance. It's saying, I can't save myself. And not only that, I've worshipped myself for so long that I need to repent and say, God, I need you to save me and do the work. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. And when we do those two things, when we do those two things, what does God do? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He offers you heaven. God grants us the kingdom when we repent. He doesn't grant you a labor camp for you to work off your sin. If I was a good king, that's what I'd do, right? That's why none of you should ever elect me for that position. He grants us the kingdom. Acknowledging our sin doesn't make us guilty. We already are. Acknowledging our sin drives us to the feet of our Savior. And that's just the opposite. Think about the opposite. We spend our lives trying to build our personal kingdom so we can be proud of. God, look what I've done. 
Look at how much I've given to charity. God, have you met my kids? Look at how beautiful and well-maintained they are. Look at my job, Lord. How much have I worked for you? Look at fill in the blank. Remember that spotlight of pride? And when we do that, we find ourselves not satisfied and always wanting more. Right? J.D. Rockefeller. Right? When will be enough money? No. Just, just one more. Just a little bit more. Richest man in the world. Tom Brady, who I love. Right? What's your favorite Super Bowl, Tom? The next one. The things in life that we desire don't satisfy us because they were never meant to satisfy you. All it does is fill us with pride. But that pride is fleeting. Pride's fleeting. Church, what I want us to do today, I want us to spend some time going to the Lord in prayer. We're going to have a season of prayer here in a second. Because if we desire revival in our communities, we need to do the hard work of going before the Lord. We need to do that. So I wanted us to set aside some time in worship today to do just that. And watch what happens when we do this. What does God promise? Blessing. If we want blessing to pour out on our church, may we begin with humbling our hearts. For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it is a blessing to those who humble themselves before the Lord.